0: Good morning, everyone. Sorry, the the mic pack is higher up than normal. I normally have jeans on, so it's a little bit awkward. Um, Good morning. Welcome to City Hill. Welcome to those that are going to catch up on the message later on in the week online. Um, We are busy with a series at the moment entitled Purpose, and so this is week four of that series. And if you are just joining us, um, we've been working through these booklets. And so today you'll see page 10 is where there's space for notes, and then page 11 and 12 is for the small group meetings later on in the week, but if you haven't got a book yet, I'm sure you can go and chat to Sue at the info desk at the back and grab one, um, but if you're like me, I'm not much of a note taker, I'm more of a listener, so there will be uh, scriptures up on the screen, but um, there's a lot to get through, so I'll try and stick to the notes. Uh, so basically throughout this series, we are looking at what the purpose is that God has for his church. And we are looking at what is the purpose of life, basically. I mean, it's a, it's a question that's plagued people for centuries. Not just within the Christian societies, but I think mankind in general have wondered what is the point of our existence? Why are we here? And throughout societies and throughout history, you will read the story of people trying to get that answer. Um, and today, because we're such a clever society, I've got good news for you. I Googled the answer, and the answer is. There is no point. If you are, I found this quote, promise you, on Google, it says this, appreciating that life has no inherent point frees you to create your own point, your own meaning, recognizing that you can create your meaning, that you can simply enjoy your one and only life with all of its ups and downs, may be the most freeing experience of all. Like, yay, what's the point of life? According to Google, there isn't one. I mean, in fact, you can make your own point of life according to the society and the thinking that we've got today. Now, from somebody who doesn't even like having to decide what to make for supper every night, I certainly don't want to be the master of my own destiny and be the one that goes, oh, the point is all on me. Because if I'm the creator of my own point and purpose and you are the creator of yours, what happens when our two points conflict and they they rub against each other? What if... What if your version of right and wrong, according to your point, doesn't line up with my version of right and wrong? We'll find ourselves in total anarchy and chaos in the world that we live in, because despite what Google and today's philosophers might tell us, there is a point. There's a right and a wrong way to do everything, and generally speaking, whenever you get something, you buy a car or you buy a toaster, whatever it is, it comes with an instruction manual, right? Right? There's a right and a wrong way to drive a car, correct? I mean, if you want the optimum performance, you, you go to the manual and you check out what the designer and creator of that car has said in order to know how to drive it correctly not to say that our lives are like cars, but in a a little bit of a sense, following that metaphor, if we want to find out the point and the purpose of our lives, we have to have a point of reference from which to operate. And that point of reference can't be Google, and it can't be good philosophies, and it can't be great ideas. It has got to be the designer and the creator who made us. And so the whole purpose of this series called Purpose is realizing that the point of reference around which we base our existence, around which we walk in this life, is the point of reference of God himself who created us. It's going back to the to the owner's manual, as it were. It's consulting the designer. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at some of the... Well, throughout the series, we're going to look at five big purposes. But this is the third big purpose that we're going to talk about this morning... Um, and we have looked at Christ as being one of the purposes and how we need to have a relationship with Christ. We've looked at Christ-likeness last week where Tim preached on what it is to sort of copy the example and have the image of Christ in our lives and to have a Christ-likeness in our day-to-day walk. And so today, if you are taking notes, today we're going to be looking at the purpose of community. So all of them follow C's. And so we've got Christ, we've got Christ-likeness. And today we're going to unpack the concept of Community. The key verse throughout this whole, uh, throughout the whole, um, series is found in Ephesians 2 verse 10. And by now we should be able to quote it, and I'm sure many of us know it. It says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. There is a plan, and there is a purpose for us. Not just something we have to come up with ourselves, but a designer who has designed a specific path for us, and if we plug into there, we will be having the optimal sort of level of life and fulfillment, and, and, and we will find a point to our existence. And so we need Christ. We need Christ-likeness, and today we're going to talk about we need community, Now, community by definition, if you go to the dictionary, means a group of people living in the same place or having a particular characteristic in common. It's the condition of sharing or having certain attitudes and interests in common. Community is not just a healthy idea, it's an integral part of God's design for his people. Nowhere in the Bible does God ever speak about having me, myself, and I attitude. I mean, if you take the very life of Christ, you look at the example of the life of Christ, he wasn't out there as a lone soldier. Everything Jesus did, he did within a sort of a network of people. Because God loves people. He loves us. And if God loves people, we are called to love people. In fact, Jesus gave two greatest commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. We are designed for community. Community, communing with others, is part of God's plan and purpose for us. If you truly want to get to know God, I would argue that you need to get to know his people. C.S. Lewis put it like this, He argues that it takes a community of people to get to know an individual person. Reflecting on his own friendships, he observed that some aspects of one of his friend's personality were brought out only through interaction with a second friend. I mean, think about people you know. You know them in one way, but when you see them interacting with other people, you might get to know something about them that you don't see yourself. That means that if he lost the second friend, he lost the part of his first friend that was otherwise invisible. And this is what he said. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. If it takes a community to know an ordinary human being, how much more necessary would it be to get to know Jesus alongside others? By praying with friends, you will be able to hear and see facets of Jesus that you have not yet perceived. God is a God of community. He's a God of people. He's a God of networking. God loves people and he knows that we as people need people because he's designed us that way. Just think about COVID-19 and the 2020 shutdown that we had. One of the biggest things, if you speak to anyone, one of the biggest sort of um, obstacles of that time, one of the biggest things we remember is how cut off we were from everyone else. And yes, I get it. I know some of us are more introverted. We don't necessarily want the big crowds, but nobody was ever designed to live in isolation by themselves, me, myself, and I plowing my way through. Everybody needs others to network and to commune. In fact, the word... Uh, community comes from, um, you'll hear it in the word municipality. It means performing services together. That's what community in its Latin sense actually means. Performing services and performing them together. In Matthew 18 verse 20, Jesus said, for where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And as Tim was saying in the prayer meeting this morning, that doesn't mean that in order to experience Jesus, you can't experience him on your own. But there is a power when the community of God comes together. There's a power when people stand together and agree on something. There are different facets of Jesus. The multi-layered glory of our God becomes evident when we worship with others around us. And so we are, this morning, just going to unpack three quick points. And I know it's Social Sunday, so I know we're going to have good smells wafting through here shortly, so I promise I'll try to be reasonably short. But we're going to look at what is the community of God. We're going to look at what does God say about his community, and we're going to talk about what are the implications and applications for that community in our day and age and for our own lives. So first of all, what is the community of God? Like I said earlier, the the definition of community means a group of people with like-mindedness. So you can get different communities across the planet. But when God speaks about community, he is speaking about his church, the church of God. And nowadays, the word church has become synonymous with a building. We speak about, I go to church, or I was at church, or I'm coming home from church. And when we think about church, we tend to think about church in terms of the four walls and the venue in which we gather, whatever that venue may be, the field, the tent, the whatever, building, the school hall. We tend to think, okay, church is a place. But in the original translations, in the Greek translations, whenever Jesus spoke about his church, he spoke, he, the, the word was not church, it was the word ecclesia, ecclesia. And Ecclesia, translated, doesn't mean the building. It means the called out ones. It means the chosen ones. You see, church is not a building. It's not a place. It's the people of God. The walls could crumble around us, and let's hope they don't. But they could. And that wouldn't take away from the church of God still being in this place. You and I are part of the church of God of God we have been called out from the world and into the community of God's chosen people God's church has always been part of his plan we're going to do a lot of referencing with the book of Ephesians and Corinthians this morning, but um, so the, the main verse is Ephesians 2 verse 10, but if you go exactly a, chap- a chapter on, Ephesians 3 verse 10, so if you want to write that down, Ephesians 3 verse 10 tells us that God has always had a plan and that plan has always involved his church. You will notice he, ne- nowhere in scripture does he really elevate one person. It's always, there might be a leader among them, but it's always people moving forward together. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says this, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It is through the church, through the community of God, through his people that God will reveal himself and his plan to the world. Steve Wimble, in his um, uh, preach on this particular topic, put it like this, and I'm going to quote him. He said, this is very different to Western modern ideology, which is all about me, myself, and I. When we come to finding our purpose under God, our own individual purpose is only a very small part of it. But when we come together as a church, the multi-layered splendor of who God is shines out into the world. It's not just each of us in our own corners finding our own purposes in isolation. The story of the church has always been the story of the people of God. And yes, it's important for each of us to know our giftings and to know our, our role and to know, you know, where does God expect us to fit in? But it's not just about me, myself, and I. It's about us collectively as the people of God bringing forth his wisdom into the world. He operates through us into the world. So what does God say about his community? We're going to look at three very quick metaphors that are used with the community of God that he speaks about when he speaks about his church. And there's three very powerful images. But I'd like to say this before I begin, because this is what occurred to me. Sorry, they have warned me, be careful, the projectors behind you. So just now, everything goes flying. I'm sorry. They have, when I was trying to fathom this out in my own mind, please forgive my very poor metaphor here, but we're going to read about three stories and three images that Jesus and, and Scripture uses to explain what the church is. And they are images that we can relate to as people. But some of us within our images or within those stories will have very different experiences And I was thinking about how do you explain to an ant what an aeroplane is? Like, how do you explain to an ant who's in a tiny little corner of the world and that's where they spend their existence, how do you explain massive air travel across a planet, right? So if I had to explain air travel to an ant, I might use a feather as an illustration of something big that they can ride on, that can fly them around, okay? But does a feather really compare to an aeroplane, Do you hear what I'm saying? So the images here are are metaphors, and some of us might look at it. For example, the first one is a metaphor on marriage. And some of us might go, well, we've got less than perfect marriages. That's how God describes the church. No, thank you. You've got to realize that these images that God creates when he speaks of them are in the perfect sense, in the way that they were created to be, not just the feather, but the whole airplane, and sometimes we get so put off the church and we get so put off community because of the blemishes and the things going on that we actually miss the bigger picture. And so I'd encourage you this morning, open your hearts as we read these, these illustrations. Open your minds, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to put aside your own experiences with them and to go, okay, that's that's the image God put forward because in his perfectness, that's how it would be. So the first image, and I've hinted at it already, is that Jesus repeatedly calls the church the bride of Christ. We read it in Ephesians 5, we read it in 2 Corinthians, we read it again in Revelation. Over and over and over again, the Bible and Jesus and Scripture refer to his church as his bride. In fact, in Ephesians 5, he says this, this is verse 25 to 27. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. And then it goes down to verse 32. It says, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. As his church... As his community, we are the bride of Christ. He loves us as a bridegroom would love the one that he is betrothed to. He loves us and hopes for us in the same way that us as couples should love each other, but we often fall short. The story of God, if you read it through the Bible, is ultimately a love story. It begins with Adam and Eve. It ends with a wedding in Revelation. And throughout the pages up until that wedding, it's the story of how God is reconciling us, his people, to himself. Just think about the preparations for a wedding. Those that have been married or those that are hoping to one day, there's there's big stuff that happens. It doesn't just, you don't just snap your fingers and suddenly it's all there. There's big things and big preparations that go into a wedding. And that is where us as a church find ourselves right now. The bridegroom has made a covenant with us. He's paid the bride price. He has. His blood has been the price for us, his bride. But the wedding is still coming. We're still in the preparation stages. And Jesus doesn't look at us as the church. Sorry, is this echoing? I'm hearing a lot of S's behind me. Um, He doesn't look at us as the church as, oh, you are falling short. He sees us how we're going to be on our wedding day. We are still in the preparation stages. We are still blemished. We are still wrinkled. There is still perhaps some weight we want to lose and some spray tan we want to put on and I don't know, a few things we want to... I don't know. I I think guys have it easier. They're just tuxedo, hey. No, they get the haircut. You follow what I'm saying? There's a preparation in progress. And if we despise that image because we go, well, the church is flawed. There's people in the church that I don't get on with. There's other people... you, You have no idea like the people that I'm sitting in the congregation with and how they've offended me. If that is our image and our view of the church, we're missing the bigger picture. Because as Jesus Jesus said last week, through Tim, (laughs) as as Tim said last week, now I've thrown myself off. What did you say last week, Tim? (laughs) Spoke about how we are becoming Christ-like. It's not something you wave a magic wand or you snap your fingers and it just happens. We are faulty people. And, and it happens that we have these faults and we have these blemishes, but so long as we're not living in them, so long as we are hoping through them and hopeful through them and working through them, Jesus doesn't see us as this blemished, wrinkled, terrible bunch of people. He sees us as the bride that he is waiting to wed with. And just as much as a husband and wife should love each other with an intimate love, that is exactly, in fact, more so how Jesus loves us, his people, his people. We are his ecclesia, we are his called out, we are his chosen ones. You and I, not one person in the room can go, well, that's everyone else, not me. You and I are the chosen bride of Christ. And it speaks about the love that he has for us, that he would lay down his very best, that we could be called his. The second image that's given throughout scripture is the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, being the temple of God. See, in the beginning, Adam and Eve could commune with God. They could walk with him in the garden quite openly. They had communion with him. They, had their, they could see God face to face. There was no barrier between the God of all creation and his chosen children. And then we know the story that Adam and Eve fell. They committed a sin, and people were separated forever from God. And then in the story of God, we read about how the Israelites are instructed to build a temple, and they build this really ornate temple to God, and God comes and lives in the temple, but in a special place, and we spoke about this before, and um, we, I know we, we touched on it quite in depth last year as well, but he's got a special place within the temple called the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is separated from everywhere else because there is this veil that separates the presence of God from the people. And we, we unpacked it and there were pictures last year and we spoke about how there's different sort of areas within the temple for different levels of sort of goodness and people that qualify to come into the presence of God. But only once a year could one person, the high priest, enter into the Holy of Holies. Once a year. And then we read that when Jesus died on the cross... It tells us that as he died, the veil in the temple was torn. And once again, there was, no, there was nothing separating, no obstacle separating God's presence from his people. In fact, in Ephesians 2, you might go, well, where's the temple right now? Here it is. Because in Ephesians 2, it says this. This is 2 verse 19 to 22, if you're writing these down. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. You and I are the bricks in the temple of the living God. God dwells in us and among us, No more separated by either a sin or a veil. God himself calls us his people and he calls us his home here on earth. It's sort of like, yeah, okay, cool. God lives in my heart. We teach it in Sunday school. Yeah, Jesus lives in my heart. No, God himself lives inside us and among us. We are the living temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16 to 17 Says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. Let me just throw that in there. Okay. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. God's church is his temple. His ecclesia, his called out ones. We are his bride. We are loved beyond measure. We are his temple. We experience the very presence of God. And particularly when we are in community like this, when we come together and we worship him and we, we, we read and we pray and we, we live lives together, the temple of God becomes that much more relevant and, and, and reveals itself to the rest of the world. Every one of us is like a living brick. You take a brick and you put it here, it's got, like, what's the point? You know, yay, a brick. But those bricks become the foundation for so many masterpieces. And you and I are part of God's ultimate masterpiece. We are his temple. Again, there's no me, myself, and I. That's not being a temple. Steve says that's just being a brick. But part of the living temple of God means recognizing that you and I are part of the community of God. The third image that God uses is that the church is the body of Christ. Before I get to the scriptures, I want to read something here that C.S. Lewis said. I'm jumping myself ahead in my notes, but here we go. C.S. Lewis says this, God seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly and in the twinkling of an eye. I mean, have you thought about it? Like, God doesn't need us. He doesn't particularly need us. He's God. He can do it all, but he wants us. There's another quote that says, God is not looking for a domain to dominate, but for a people to partner with. God doesn't need us. He wants us. We're loved like the bride. We have his presence like the temple, and we should function like the body. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 15 to 16, we read the following. It says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You and I are part of the body of Christ. There's another, and it's a lengthy piece, and I wasn't going to read all of it, but I am. Because I, I, don't want, I don't want anyone to miss any of it. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 27, it unpacks even more this idea of the body. It says, just as a body, though one, has many different parts. I mean, all of me is my body, right? But I've got different body parts. So it's, it's not like one part of my body can claim to be the whole body. There's different parts and different functions. So just as a body, though one, has many different parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an R, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. And then it goes on, I won't read all of this, but it goes on to say, like, the eye can't suddenly go, well, I'm the ear. And the foot can't suddenly go, well, I'm the hand. Um, But it it, it keeps going down, and, and verse 26 and 27, it says this, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. How profound. God couldn't possibly use me. He's got no point for me. You don't know what I've done. You have no idea how much I've fallen short. A few years ago, I don't know what I did I was closing a window, I didn't trap my finger in the window, I didn't do anything odd, but all of a sudden, my finger swelled up, and for days and days and days, my finger was just, there was no mark on it, visibly, there was just this weird lump, and I mean, eventually, it was so bad, it was keeping me awake at night, it was uncomfortable, and I went to the doctor, and she didn't quite know what it was, and eventually, it just kind of went away on its own. And she said to me, I was like, I feel so silly coming to you for a finger. She's like, you don't mess around with fingers and toes. They're important. You know, if one of them is hurting, you need to get help. It doesn't matter where you feel you fit in in the body. When one part of the body hurts, the rest of the body feels that pain. When you are hurting, when you are feeling lost, when you feel like you just want to amputate yourself off the body, the body feels that We need each other. And in the same way, when when one part of the body celebrates, we should be celebrating with it. We were each created to be a unique part of this living framework that God has called his community and his church. And each of us has a role to play. And just by pulling ourselves back doesn't make us have any less of a role. It just means we're not doing what we should be doing. Well, that's it, I'm done. I'm done with church, I'm done with community. It's hurting the church and it's hurting us. We need to be part of the body of Christ and we need to actively, actively play the role in that part. Last week, Tim showed some images of different sailing vessels and there was a rowboat and somebody having to get there on their own steam and there was a a raft just kind of floating along and then there was one which I I think we've got this morning, an image of a sailing vessel. I'm not a sailor, but I've watched Pirates of the Caribbean, so it's pretty close. (laughs) I would imagine you cannot possibly, although, like Tim was saying, you've got to position yourself to catch the wind. You can't possibly sail that vessel and pull all the ropes and do all the things and whatever it is that you have to do with the sails and the pulleys and the. You can't do that by yourself. That's not a one man kind of cruise ship. If we are truly going to. To, to work towards what God has given us. If we are truly part of His community, then each one of us has a part to play. And it's vital, whether you think you do or not, God says you do, and that should be good enough for us. Each one of us has a part to play in the body of Christ. And when we are all doing what we should be doing, it's smooth sailing. And when we're not, we're there to lift each other up and help each other through. Because yes, we are the called out ones, but... We're still prepared for the wedding, being prepared. There's still blemishes, there's still wrinkles, there's still things we have to work through. And instead of putting each other down when we get the opportunity, we should be banding around and lifting each other up and and encircling and surrounding each other and holding each other up in prayer. We are the bride, we are the temple, and we are the body of Christ. I want to touch on very quickly, and then I promise we'll be done, Four applications and implications that this has for us in today's church. Four reminders, as it were, and I promise all four fit on one page. They're quick. So if you're taking notes, you can jot it down and then um, chat about it more in small group this week. But the first one, for us as the community and the ecclesia of God, never lose hope for the church. Never lose hope. Never give up. Many people are bleak. Many people feel that they've lost their hope in this church community for whatever reason. And I'm not saying some of those hurts aren't really real. And I don't want to invalidate anything you might be feeling. Because, yes, sometimes we get upset because someone said something in a snappy way to me or they, they ignored me or whatever it is. But other times we get hurt because someone really did hurt us. And there's a really valid reason for our hurt. We need to... We need to follow what scripture says in terms of addressing that and not pull back and amputate ourselves from the body or remove our brick from the wall, you know, or refuse to prepare for the wedding. Never lose hope for the church. Yes, we're made up of faulty people. We're made up of people that, you know, sometimes we're blundering along slowly, but we are following a perfect God. And if we keep our eyes on him, everything else pales in in comparison, Steve Wimble puts it like this, we don't lose hope in the church because his bride is becoming more beautiful, his presence is becoming more tangible, and his body is becoming more functional. We are in a process. And when we pull together and we recognize it's not always going to be smooth sailing, but I'm going to stick to the path that God has given me within my community, we will, I promise you that, we will pull ahead. The second application for us is if you're if if you part of the body, you should recognize you've got gifts and you've got strengths. And we need to use those gifts that God has given us to strengthen the church. Community, as I said earlier, is not just people living together, it's people serving together. We should all have a life of service towards each other. Ephesians 4 verse 16 speaks about each part doing its work. So if we are truly going to be pulled together as the community of God, then each of us recognizes we have a role to play, we have a gift to bring, and there's something that we can do. There's a way that we can serve. That this isn't a cruise liner that's got some crew. It's a sailing ship where everyone is all hands on deck and everyone is pulling together towards the ultimate goal. Number three, if Jesus loves his church, so should we. If God loves his people we should love his people. Because if God has said they are worthy of love, who are we to say otherwise? In Hebrews 10 verse 24, it speaks about encouraging each other and living lives together. We get together to worship. We get together on Sundays. We get together to pray. And it's not just necessarily large communities, but within the smaller group communities in our church as well, connecting with each other wherever we can. And the fourth and final application is that if all of this is true and God loves his community and he loves his church, then we too should love the whole church of God. When one part is hurting, we should feel that hurt and pray into that area. And I'm not just talking about the church of City Hill or the churches of Toti. I'm talking about the churches of the world we should be praying for and into the situations of our brothers and sisters and our fellow community across the planet. I don't think it's a competition. Well, our church does things this way. I prefer that. Different flavors, different styles bring out the different facets of our multi-glorious God. Different people worshiping in their way within the church of Christ I'm not speaking about a philosophy of all roads lead to Rome, so that's okay. I'm talking about within the church of God, within the church of Christ, there will be different styles, there will be different communities, smaller-based communities, and us as his people are called to love each and every one of them. So just for those who are taking notes, the applications, again, never losing hope in the church, using our gifts to strengthen the church, loving the church, and loving the whole church of God. I want to finish with that same um, quote from Steve Wimble. His bride is becoming more beautiful, his presence is becoming more tangible, and his body is becoming more functional. Our ultimate purpose in having a relationship with Christ, in becoming more Christ-likeness, is to pull together as his ecclesia and his called-out ones and to be part, an active, living, functional part of the community of God. Can we stand together and pray? Heavenly Father, we are, we are a blemished people, Lord. We are a people who at times rub against each other, who rub each other the wrong way, who hurt, Lord. But, Father, may that never take away from the calling upon your people. Lord, will you teach us throughout this series and and beyond that we keep our eyes fixed firmly on you. Lord, that we strengthen our relationship with you. We strengthen the example that you've set for us in our own lives, Lord, and that we lift others up as we go. Lord Jesus, may this never be a competition of one above the other, Father, but rather us mimicking you where you served and you lifted others up along with you. Father God, we pray for your church, not just in this building, Lord, but across your planet. Lord, we pray for every every part of the body of Christ and those that might be hurting now, those that might find themselves persecuted, Lord. We can but pray for your peace your comfort, your strength there, Lord. And Father God, for those of us in this room now, for the families represented, for the people, Lord, that within our own small community, our own small body might be hurting, Lord, we pray for a renewal. We pray for a comfort. We pray for a healing. Father God, that as your word reveals itself to us, we may become the bride that you have called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.